I was impressed by all the different events that took place. Um, I was a little disappointed. Uh, we were singing the bleacher section, and the bleacher section did not get the champagne and cake that those who were on the island of the Century Center got. I was a little disappointed by that, but, you know, that's the way it is at times. So excellent job, South Bend. Way to go. I think it's great when we can have good things happen in the city and they go well. But in spite of all the great things that it was going on, there was one negative story that was in the South Bend Tribune in regards to that whole weekend celebration and different events, and that was... There's kind of a mini crisis kicking off the weekend because, especially for the zip line, because um, in advance you could sign up to volunteer to help out for the weekend, all sorts of areas that you could help and volunteer. And then when it actually came time to show up to do your part, only 40% of those who signed up to volunteer showed up. And so there's sort of a mini crisis in the city for these weekend celebrations because uh, just barely over a third of those who said they would help out and volunteer actually showed up. And it was particularly affected in those with a zip line because in order to do the zip line, you had to have training for it, which I'm for, right? Like you don't want to send your kid across the St. Joe River without somebody who's been trained to know how to work the zip line, that wire, small wire going across the river. And so they were late getting started because of that. Now, for most people... When they hear that sort of negative story and commentary, it could be kind of disheartening. You could be discouraged by, oh, you know, like, oh, that's a bummer. But as a pastor of a church who lives and dies based on volunteers, my thought was, oh, good, (laughs) we aren't the only ones who struggle with some of those issues and problems. In fact, what I did is I cut out the link and sent it to the rest of the staff to encourage them that, no, listen, this is kind of widespread. There can be an issue with this. But almost two-thirds, slightly under, said they would help, but in the end didn't, which I know can be an ouch. And then I started to think about all the other uh, community organizations that I've been a part of here in our community, or at least have been connected to in some way. And I recall just the frustrations I've seen in many of those organizations, what they go through in regards to people saying they would help out, and then having a hard time following through on their commitments. For example, um, all three of my kids played at the Southeast Little League up there on, on Jackson Road. They played ball there. And I've got fond memories of being at the ballpark and watching the kids play. But there's always, when I'd show up as a dad to the games, there's always a little bit of tension at the start of every game. And the reason why is because the game, you know, for the little kids, depended on parents who were willing to volunteer. Now, I'm not talking about, like, those parents who volunteered as coaches, who were putting in tons of hours and practices and then in games, which is a whole other level of volunteering and commitment. I'm talking about those two parents who were presently in the stands that were going to be asked to ump the game, right? You know what I'm talking about? See, some of you with any uh, knowledge of Little League knows how this works. I, I, so I would show up to the game and be sitting in the stand, and I recognized that each coach from each team was responsible for finding one person to ump behind the plate and another one to ump out in the field. And so what would happen is we would be sitting there and the coach would walk up to the stands and give us those, you know, that. Would any parent be willing to go out? And so as a parent in the stands, the tension was the last thing I wanted to do was ump a game. And the reason why is because I've discovered in my life that when kids are involved in sports, sometimes it gets a little competitive. 
And when it starts to get competitive, what I've discovered is parents can lose their ever-loving mind in the midst of it, and I'm not getting paid for this. I'm not a professional, and the last thing I want is to be yelled at by some angry parent because they didn't like my call. And so when the coach would come over, I would have an emergency phone call that just came through that I had to take as an important pastor here in the community, or I've suddenly been struck with some mysterious blindness and deafness I cannot explain. I cannot hear you or see you, or I have this amnesia moment where I don't even know where I'm at at the moment. How can I possibly call a game? And so, listen, I completely understand both sides. If you want a little league for your kids, everyone has to chip in and make it happen. They have to do their part. And on the other side, Everything in me does not want to ump a game. Now, not true with volleyball. Volleyball is different, right, because they need line judges, and they give you flags. And I love having the flags because I could do a, a special routine with those flags <laughs> to embarrass my daughter. It's awesome. Like that's, I'm down with that. But you know what else that little leagues need and depend on? Like You can't have a good little league without it. You know what you need? You need a concession stand. It's vital. You can't have a legitimate little league without a concession stand, but to do that, you obviously are going to need what? You need what for a concession stand? Ring pops for those kids because they love it. No, No, you need volunteers along with the ring pops. So here's what the Southeast Little League did. They got smart. They decided when you registered your kid for uh, the ball, for, for Little League, you had to pay an extra $50, which was a concession fee. Now, when you worked your two hours in the concession stand, you would get your $50 back. If you didn't work the concession stand, you lost your $50 because they had to scramble and figure out who can we pay to come in here and work the concession stand because the one who was supposed to didn't show up. And so I thought, oh, that's brilliant. Like, and who's going to give up $50? Like, that's 50 bucks. But come to find out, once you get on the inside, you realize, no, lots of people were willing to say, eh, forget the 50 bucks and just not show up. And then I just started to think about all the sorts of things in the community that are completely dependent on people volunteering and following through and being dependable from, like, if you've ever served, like, as an officer in a PTO at a school, like, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like, it, it's like pulling teeth at times. To You might get parents to actually sign up to help, but, like, them actually following through to do what it is that they said that they would do can be a real difficulty for that fundraiser or organizing that fun fair. And I start thinking about neighborhood associations, community development organizations, the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, things like that, and just sporting leagues of all types. If you've ever been in leadership in any of those arenas, you very quickly begin to appreciate and understand there is a virtue of dependability, a virtue of of dependability. And you will live and die based on how many people in our community have this virtue. You might suffer under the discouragement and weight of the revelation that commitment and dependability might be in short supply in our day and age. And I have to tell you, like, this is not a sermon of, I've arrived, I'm so dependable, let me tell you how I got here. This is a, no, I get it. Like, I totally, completely understand. We kind of have a commitment phobia culture, and you can see it in everything, from relationships that don't seem to be moving anywhere, and at the heart of it is this fear of committing. You can see it in our desire to just want to keep our options open. I I mean, I don't want to be pinned down to something because I don't know what else might come around, what my, my other options be at that particular time. So if I agree to help you move on that weekend which I won't because I don't help anybody move anymore unless I really, really love you, and I probably don't. So don't ever ask me to help you move. That's just 
I have been on hundreds of moves as the preacher here. I've retired, and so, but somebody might help you. It'd be great. But anyhow, if I do agree to help you move at 9 in the morning, I don't know that the night before one of my good friends might call and say, hey, I've got an extra ticket to the Cubs game tomorrow. Do you want to go? And now I can't go because I told you I was going to help you move, which I probably won't, but if I did, hypothetically. So I get it. I mean, how many times... Have we agreed to something months in advance or even weeks in advance thinking, oh, sure, no problem, because it's weeks away. And then the night before, you're like, I can't believe I said I'd do that. I think everything you want to get right, you know what I'm talking Am I the one that's ever felt that? Like, have you, you felt that before? Yeah, like, oh, that'd be no problem. Like, it's weeks away. And then the day before, you're like, how do I get out of this? Like, that's what we're kind of, I don't want to commit because, it's summer. <laughs> Who commits during the summer? Who knows what I might be wanting to do? And I totally understand this. We live in a culture that doesn't want to be tied down to anything. We're afraid to commit to anything. We want our options to be open and exist if things get difficult or uncomfortable. But as I think about it, I'm not sure it's always been like that. Like, I think there was a time when your word meant something. Like if you shook on it even, like that was more binding than the contract that you signed. It was a thing of shame and disgrace not to keep your word. That dependability was a virtue that was, and I think should be, celebrated and honored. And then when I look into scriptures, what I see is Jesus gives us ethical guidance, so to speak, in regards to the kind of people that we ought to be. And the question behind it for me is always why. Like when Jesus tells me, I want you to live your life like this, my question is, Why does he want me to live my life like that? Why does that matter? Why is that so important? And for example, Jesus tells us we should be the kind of people by way of character that loves our enemies, which is no small thing. That's a huge ask, isn't it? Like to love, not like just tolerate or ignore well, but like to actually love our enemies. And my question is always, why does Jesus want us to be like that? And I don't think his answer would be, well, because that makes God happy. Not that that would not be a reason enough for us to do that, but because when you follow after Jesus, there'll be a collision of kingdoms that will take place in regards to his mission. And the truth is that this kingdom conflict is only overcome by love. If evil responds to evil, then nothing changes in the world. It will just be status quo. That's what we already have, and that will just continue on and on. But if you want something revolutionary, which Jesus is calling for, let love respond to evil. Then evil is conquered. And that's the whole point of the cross for Jesus. And so we're to be a people that learn to cultivate cultivate by way of ethics and behavior the kind of people that respond with love in the face of evil, including from our enemies. Not because it makes God happy, but because that quality is essential for Jesus' mission in the world, and that is why he explicitly tells his disciples to be like that. So there is a why behind the ethical teaching of Jesus, a reason for asking us to be that kind of a person. Now, let me go to another illustration or example that I think will be helpful for what I'm talking about this morning, and that's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus says this. Listen to this. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to, to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. 
All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, Jesus is taking on the issue here of dependability. He's putting his finger on an issue of integrity and honesty. And here's what you know in terms of the background. In Jesus' day, there's kind of a hierarchy of oaths that you could take. Like you could say, you know, I swear that this is the truth. And that would mean something. But if you said, yeah, but I swear by Jerusalem that this is true, it'd be like a, oh. And then if you said, yeah, well, I swear by the temple in Jerusalem, it'd be like, well, if I swear by the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, right? And it's escalating all the way to, I swear to the gift that's on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Like, that's how it works. It's sort of be like, um, you know how it goes like, well, I dare you. There's already kind of that like, oh, I've been dared, like, right? But if somebody comes and says, I double dog dare you, well, right? And then if somebody comes in and says what? you have to put your tongue on the pole, even if it's frozen. Like, you have to, right? You've been triple dog there. You cannot get out of this. And so it, there's a hierarchy, so to speak. That's sort of what it's like. And to some extent, we still do that today. Like, it's one thing if I say something to you. It's another thing if I say, I swear to God, it's true. You're supposed to go, oh, well, he must mean. Or I swear on my dead mother's grave, or I swear on the lives of my children. Those are escalating comments where we go, oh, we should probably take that then more seriously. And Jesus comes along and says, we're not doing any of that anymore. Like, I just need you to be a kind of person where when you say yes, everyone around you knows it's a yes. And when you say no, everyone around you knows it's a no. And why do they know that? Because you're a person of integrity and honesty and dependability. And that seems to be an issue in our culture. Like, and I'm telling you as one who struggles with it myself, like, I recognize, like, even today, here's what I've discovered in terms of surveys and, and studies here. Did you know 98% of teenagers report that they have lied to their parents? 98%, right? <laughs> That's shocking, isn't it, Mom? Shocking. See that? I need the elders to pray for Amber. Obviously, that was a shock to her. The, she didn't know, right? And I'm just grateful that my three kids are in the 2% of the kids who I'm like, I mean, it's, it's nice. I feel good about that. And so the reports talk about what all they lie about. The teens lied about what they spent their allowance on. So if you don't give an allowance, you'll take care of that right away. Um, and whether they'd started dating, what clothes they put on away from the house, which, you know, I did all the time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I never did. They lied about what movie they went to and who they went there with. They lied about alcohol and drug use, and they lied about whether they were hanging out with friends that they know their parents disapproved of. They lied about how they spent their afternoons while their parents were at work. They lied about whether chaperones were in attendance at a party or whether they rode in cars driven by drunk teenagers. All of those were on the list. And being an honor student didn't change those numbers at all. Neither did being an overly scheduled kid. So no kid apparently was too busy to break a few rules. The survey highlights were 89% of students believe that being a good person is more important than being rich. However, almost one in three boys and one in four girls, that's 33%, 25%, admitted that in the past year they had stolen something uh, from somebody else. Moreover, 21% admit they stole something from their parent or a relative. 18% admitted stealing from a friend. When it came to lying, more than two in five said they would sometimes lie to save money. 48% males, 35% females. And in terms of cheating in school itself, just like on homeworks and tests, stuff like that, 
a majority of students, 59% admitted cheating on a test during the last year. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's only those who are willing to admit that they cheated on the test in the last year. 34% admit doing it more than one time, and one in three admitted they used the Internet to plagiarize an assignment. And so you hear those, you go, that's bad. I mean, where did they get that? And probably from us as parents is where they got it. They learn how like, I mean, because when we go to the Chinese buffet and we say to our 12-year-old, today I need you to be 11 because when you're 12, you get charged an extra 350 for the buffet, and right? Right? It's like, you're 11, right? So your kid's six foot three, he's got a beard, but he's still 11, so you get a discount at the Chinese buffet. Or when we kind of fudged a little bit on the tax numbers so we can slightly help the deductions or... When they heard us say to somebody else, oh, well, you know, I can't do it because and you throw in your excuse. And they're like, you're just sitting around the house. Like, we know that that's totally not true. There's a myriad of white lies that we speak to one another daily. And listen, I don't think Jesus' main and chief concern is legalistically, like, don't lie, even though I think that's important to him. But the whole point is, even the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to defy legalism. That's what Jesus is actually trying to undo. His bigger issue is character. What he's asking is, kind of people are we? And in that, we're the kind of people that when we say yes, people will know that we mean yes. And when we say no, we'll be the kind of people that others will know we mean no. We don't need to stumble all over ourselves with swearing to this and swearing on that, trying to prove our character, because we've already proven it by the integrity of our lives. We are a people who are honest, full of integrity, and dependable. In short, it means when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Whether I feel like it or not, whether it's difficult or not, whether it's inconvenient or not, if for no other reason than because I gave you my word, and my word is supposed to represent me, it will be a reflection of my character. And these are the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be. And if we ask the question, why, why does Jesus want us to be like that? I don't think it's just because that makes God happy. I think it's because the mission of Jesus on earth is dependent on followers who have integrity and who are dependable. It will be hard to be a representative of the kingdom of God if people don't trust you, if you aren't dependable, if people can't count on you for anything. It will be hard for you to speak and advocate for good news if, in fact, you are undependable, dishonest, and bad news. That is why we are to be people that when we say yes, it's a yes, and when we say no, it's a no. If I say I have decided, we want it to mean something. And then we follow through in our commitment to that decision because of the kind of people we are, the kind of character that we have. And, you know, listen, I struggle with this too. I totally get it. I mean, how we don't want our I have decided to sound like just another empty pledge to lose weight on Monday. It's got to be Monday or it doesn't work any other day. Or I'm never going to drink again, then Friday rolls around. And when you think about it, I've decided a lot of things. And if you'll just, for a moment, just think about your life, what you'll see is that you have decided a lot of different things. And those decisions have great impact and great consequence. I mean, really, marriage is a I have decided declaration. And so when I officiate weddings, I had one, in fact, just yesterday, There's this thing included that we call the vows, where we say, I am deciding. I have decided. We make promises and we enter into covenant. It's an I have decided statement. Or when you have children, and I remember all three of my kids after their birth, 
I remember being in the room holding them, just looking at, you know, they're so precious and sweet and, and kissing each one of them and just kind of promising to them what kind of a dad I wanted to be for them. Those are I have decided moments, and they matter. Because when you skip out on the scheduled visitation, kids know that your I have decideds don't mean much. If you make a lot of promises and don't follow through, in the end what they recognize is you lack integrity. You are for them undependable. When you enter into an employment relationship, when you get a job, you are entering into a commitment. They usually give you a job description or a task or responsibility. You agree to this sort of compensation. And with that, it is a, I have decided. And when you miss deadlines or when you don't follow through with your coworkers on things you said you would do, when you continually make excuses and justifications for your failure to follow through on what you committed to do, it is a, I have decided issue and points to a lack of integrity, honesty, and dependability. And these things don't just injure you personally. They injure the cause of Christ. Because nothing is worse than being someone who is known to lack integrity and honesty and dependability, but they also want to wear the title of Christian. It's hard to represent Jesus and not be dependable. Follow through in obedience to our I have decided is crucial. In fact, Jesus tells another story, and he's got a larger point he's trying to make, but in it he uses an analogy that I think is important. It's in Matthew 21, beginning of verse 28. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. Now, if you don't go grapes, you can insert, like, go mow my yard. Like, that's important in my household. I will not, he answered. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, that's not in there. Again, <laughs> that's not in there. But this way, but later, he changed his mind, and he went. He did what his dad asked him to do. Then the father went to the other son and said the exact same thing, you know, go work in my vineyard. And that son said, I will, sir. But he didn't go. And so Jesus asked the question, which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, Jesus' main point is that those who were considered unlikely to get into the kingdom are actually beating those that we would presume are already in it. But his analogy points to what matters, actually following through with obedience to God's intent. And listen, I completely understand the difficulty at times to carry out our I have decided. I really do, like in all areas of life. Whenever I see, especially if they're young and they've never been married before, but anytime I see two young people who are getting married, like they're making those vows and promises, you know what I'm thinking to myself? You know what I'm thinking? Like, not to be cynical, but you know what I'm thinking? Like, you guys are such precious idiots. Like, that's what I, like, I, it's, it's really adorable. Like, you don't have a, you're so stupid right now because of love. You have no idea what you're saying to one another right now. But they're making, I have decided statements. And they have no idea how those commitments are going to be in the future. And every parent who initially, you know, you're just holding your little newborn. And I think this is why God makes babies so cute. Because when you're holding them, like, they're so sweet and their faces are so cute. And it's easy that moment to go, you know, I'm gonna, I have decided I'm going to commit to this little one in this particular way. It's a whole other ballgame when they get to be a teenager and they're screaming at the top of the lungs, their lungs, that they hate you and you are the worst parent ever. Totally different ballgame, right? Now, the I have decided really matter. 
or every person who kind of has that warm, fuzzy about Jesus moment, right? The worship was so good. The preaching was on fire. Church camp was awesome. Right? I mean, that moment where, like, that's great. And you see people out of that warm, fuzzy moment kind of make a commitment to Jesus. They're saying, I have decided. And inside, I'm thinking to myself, that's great, and I'm for that. We're going to help you in this. We're going to bless you in this. We're going to walk with you in this. But I just know that moment of that warm, fuzzy with Jesus, like that will be put to the test when you get that tragic news, the worst thing you've ever received in your life. Like in that moment is when I have decided matter. And yet we make promises. We give our word. We say we're going to be a particular kind of people, and now character matters. And the reason why is because the kingdom of God matters. And the kind of people we are, our dependability in this matters. Even as a community, as a church, as living stoners together, we make commitments to each other all the time in a community, like relational commitments that express our interdependence. Let me illustrate that if I can. Like uh, We do groups here three or four times a year where we ask people to sign up to be involved in a group from eight weeks to maybe 12 weeks period of time. And there's two ways you could sign up for a group. One is as a consumer, meaning like you can sign up and every week it's like, well, what am I getting out of this? Like, like what is this group doing for me? That's a kind of consumeristic attitude. And every week you kind of judge your group based on what you're getting out of it. Or the more biblical model in my mind is when you sign up to be a part of a group, another kind of a, com- a community within our community of faith, you are committing yourself in their dependence to the other people in your group and to the leader. And that's a totally different ball game because now it's not about how you feel or what you, because listen, if I can be honest with you, you're not, listen, some people in groups, like they're like, they can't wait, like all week long, woo, groups tonight, you know, they get all excited. I'm not one of those people, like, and I never have been. Like, if I go home and I eat dinner and I sit on that couch that's leather and reclinable and I turn the TV on, the last thing I want to do is get up and get out and go to group, ever, right? And it's a spiritual discipline at times to recognize, yeah, but this isn't about you. Like, you've made a commitment to other people. And there might be something going on in that person's life that God has uniquely qualified you by way of gifts and passions and ability to be an encouragement or or a source of, of help or even a prophetic word that no one else will be able to take up but you. And so you don't not go because I just don't feel like it, but no, I've given my word. I've made a commitment to even others here and to this leader to be a part. And so in it we recognize, ah, it's the virtue of dependability. Nothing, and you could ask any group leader, nothing is more discouraging than when people just go, eh, I don't feel, feel like it. Or when you commit in the children's ministry to Meredith and to others and to the kids, and then on that Saturday night when you're looking at the weather chain, you're like, oh, tomorrow is going to be beautiful. And the beach is just calling your name. Listen, I'm the pastor. Do you know how many Sunday mornings I wake up and think, I just want to go to the beach. Like, I have all the time. I completely understand. But when you click that sub-request button on a Saturday night, do you know what that does to Meredith and to her team and to other volunteers and to other people back? And, and see, what happens is these become, like, we don't even charge you 50 bucks. Like, you don't even have to, like, these are the things where, ah, the virtue of dependability. And you miss out on an opportunity to let God use you in a very significant way in the kingdom of God. And it happens all the time. And, like, for you to be used, you've got to have eyes to see it. In fact, we've got a video I want to show you in terms of our children's ministry, because sometimes there's a gulf between what happens here and what happens back there, but this is a video they did uh, a couple weeks ago I wanted to show you. Here's what kind of happens back there and how you're a real blessing to our kids. I like the worshiping and uh, singing and dancing. I like to dance. Church is because of all the crafts and I only like cuddling. 
Dr. Dan. I like church because I like to do all the crafts. I like to do all the crafts and games. I like to be kids that eat socks. Washing. I like coming because Miss Ann has the best dance moves. My favorite part of um, worship is celebrating God and Jesus. What about Jesus? And I like the snacks in the game. I like to sing. You can make a bracelet and you can put whatever color you want like orange, yellow, black. I mean, black, white. Red and light blue. Um, I like how you get to go upstairs and sing, and how all the songs are so great. I love it when we make stuff, and I love it when we sing to God. We love it. 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 We love Snowy every Sunday because she's so pretty. <laughs> I like all the crafts and how you can get to go on stage and sing. My favorite part of serving back here is watching all the kids get super excited to worship Jesus. Um, because I enjoy seeing the kids sing and dance during worship. I work with the zero to two year olds and I love it by seeing the transformation that we make in those little lives. I like to do check-in and teaching because it allows me to develop a relationship with the kids and it's really great to see all of them um, grow closer to God and to see the impact that we're making on their lives. I just like seeing the kids evolve throughout the years and watching them learn and um, dancing is always fun, watching them get involved with the singing and the dancing and the praising and um, it's just really fun to see them learn and grow and their knowledge of Because when you're old like me and you hang around with young kids, you feel younger. And these fourth grade kids not only are a challenge, but they are a challenge to stay younger. So they keep you on your toes and it makes me stay young. I want to share my knowledge of God with the kids and um, it's where I feel God has put my best attributes working with children. Because they're amazing and they're sweet and they're very sincere about their love for God. I like that I get to um, teach kids about God and Jesus. Well, I like with the kids when they understand the lesson and you can work with them. I get to work with the kindergarten and first graders here at Living Stones and uh, what I like about it is is just the playful attitude that you get to portray with them. I've enjoyed working in the nursery over the years because I have dealt with many kids and they're all at a young sweet age. Smiles and sweet silly young people, right? And I just love their attitude. And um, they want, they love Jesus. They want to know more about Jesus. That makes me happy with the kids because they have so much energy. They're smiling all the time.
Our dancing was a lot of theme, a lot of dancing going back there. We need more dancing up here is what we need. A bigger thing is happening in the kingdom, and it requires our characters to be dependable. And I know often we tend to tell ourselves that we're not needed or we're not really important. Like, uh, let me give you another, just one other illustration as I kind of wrap this up. Like our first impressions team here, who does all sorts of things in terms of just greeting, handing out bulletins, making coffee, like doing security, all, the, all those sorts of things go down here. It's very easy in the moment to go, I'm not, I mean, anyone could do this, I'm not really necessary. Anyone could say hello and greet somebody as they're coming in. And what I'd say is, no, that's not true. <laughs> Some people look like they want to kill you just at first sight. Like, it's so, like, so not everybody can do that. But something bigger is going on that oftentimes we lose sight. Let me, let me tell you what happens. Like, if you're here for the first time, this is kind of insider talk, but if you're here for the first time, maybe this was your experience, or maybe you're like, no, that didn't happen to us, so congratulations. But nobody wakes up and goes to church because they're bored. Nobody. Like, nobody woke up this morning and went, you know what, I'm bored, let's go to church. Like, that doesn't happen. You don't walk into church the first time. You go to church the first time typically because you're hoping that God is going to be an answer to something that's going on in your life. And so what happens is, typically... The morning that a family decides to go to church for the very first time, you know what's going to happen to that family? I almost guarantee you know what's going to happen? It's one of the worst mornings ever. Like, you're going to run out of milk for the cereal. The kids are going to be fighting with each other. You're going to be fighting with your spouse. You're all going to get in the minivan to come to church, and you will hate each other. Like, that's what's happening on your way to church. And two things are going to be happening, and they're happening simultaneously. One is you have an impulse to go to church. That's why you decide to set the alarm, which is unusual for you, and that's why you got, in the, got everybody dressed and showered and hairs combed and in the minivan you're on your way. So you have a desire to go, but there's an equal desire for you to turn the van around and go back home and just forget the whole thing. That's what's happening. And the reason why is because there's a larger spiritual warfare thing that I think is taking place in those moments. And when you show up to a church... Oftentimes, you're full of anxiety, you don't know where to go, there's confusion, there, like that's kind of how you feel, that's kind of what's going on. And especially here, like, you don't know, is this the entryway, <laughs> is that not the entryway, it's so weird, you pull in, there's a blue building back there, I don't see any obvious signage, you're walking up to this back deck area that makes no sense to you, you got kids, where do they go, like, that's what's happening for people walking in for the very first time. And having somebody on the porch who could greet them with sincerity, kindness, genuineness, and friendliness, oftentimes it's just, it brings down a barrier of anxiety. For somebody to be able to say, welcome this morning, I see you've got kids, they can go to, here's what our kids' canyon is, here's what our children's ministry is, is a way for people to go, okay, just another barrier coming down. Like, you might think, oh, coffee's not really a big deal, but I'm telling you, I've seen coffee cast out demons. Like, I've seen it. <laughs> like, the elders will... They'll pull out the oil and they can pray, but I've seen them go, we think only coffee can take care of this. Like, that's, well, that's the way it is. And so, so what happens is the tendency is to go, oh, I'm not needed. I'm not, now, not necessarily. And I'm saying, no, you really are. And what's happening is you are stepping on the front lines of a larger thing that's taking place. And if you'll have that in mind, you'll see this is why this is so important, whether you're in a nursery or whether you're just shaking hands and greeting people on a Sunday morning. And for that, it requires that we be the kind of people in terms of character who are dependable. And I'm not saying anything that you don't already know. Sometimes we just need to be reminded. Like, nobody's going to go, well, that was brilliant. Like, no, you know this already. I mean, you, you know these things. We just sometimes need to be reminded because we get tired. And we can get weary. And we can get discouraged. We can get cynical. Well, it doesn't matter. Or no one else cares. Why should I care? Or it's just summertime. Or we feel overwhelmed. And I just want to say, no, it does matter. Because the kingdom of God matters. 
And because we're in that kingdom, we want to be the kind of people that our yeses are a yes and our noes are a no. And our have decided have implications that reach into eternity. And how great it would be if our city had a list of volunteers and as they were preparing for that big launch weekend, if they saw the names and they went, oh, but they're a living stoner, so we can count on them. They're a living stoner. We'll know they'll show up. That gives honor and glory to Jesus. And that's the kind of people we want to be. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's just pray and ask God to fill us with that. God, we just pray right now that you would just uh, infuse us by the power of your spirit with what it is that we need to encourage us and motivate us to be people of our word. And so we do ask for your grace and your mercy for those times where we either just got tired or weary or discouraged or cynical. I pray in its place you would give us just a great sense of who we are in your son Jesus and what he's calling us to be. That we'll be the kind of people that when we say we will do something, there'll be a force of dependability behind it that people can trust that our yes is a yes and our no is a no. We want this for your sake and your glory. In the name of your son we pray.